Let's go to Mark chapter 10 tonight. We continue our study in the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. You'll remember last week we talked about the metrics of a childlike faith, the metrics of a childlike faith. Uh, First of all, it's trusting. It's trusting. Childlike faith is trusting. And then it's receptive. Kids are more receptive than adults. And then, most importantly, it's completely and totally dependent. And if your faith is to be what it ought to be, it has to be completely and totally dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, tonight, we're going to find our way to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse number 17. Mark chapter 10, verse number 17. For this graphic that I'm using, um, I asked Brother, Brother Davies to just loan me some of his money to lay in a pile right there. We can take a picture of it. And uh, anyway, Mark chapter 10, verse number 17. It's a tough crowd tonight, Brother Davies, I tell you. I may just go to the house. Mark 10, verse 17, and when Jesus was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things have I observed from my youth. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around about, and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Let me pause in verse 25. I have heard some try to say that what Jesus is talking about is a little door that's in the big city gate that, you know, camels would sometimes have to get down on their knees and you take the look. It's hard for them. I just don't believe that. I think he's talking about the eye of a needle. There's nothing historically to suggest that's how things went. I don't know why somebody would just not read it, just what it says. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold. Now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last. And the last, first. Father, would you help us now as we look to this word? Help me to rightly divide it and be help to your people. May Christ be lifted up in it. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. It's important to remember that Jesus has just finished teaching about childlike faith in verse number 15. A faith that is completely dependent on Jesus for everything. Now, in verse number 17, Jesus is approached by a rich young ruler. We know he's rich because of 
specifically Luke 18, but all three gospels imply that he's rich. He's young, according to Matthew 19, and he's a ruler, according to Luke 18. So we call him the rich, young ruler. And this guy seems to be a prime candidate for becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you've been to ministry any time at all, and I'm not talking about vocationally, I mean you've just been serving God, that sometimes you'll run into somebody and you're like, man, that guy, that lady right there, they are ripe for the gospel, man. I'm telling you, we're going to get them before they know it. This guy would be one of those guys. This looks like a, this looks like a no, just easy, you know, a thr- you know, just a home run. Why do we think that? Well, first of all, we, we see his urgency. He came running to Jesus. He came to Christ. There's an urgency there. I'll tell you what else we see. We see a humility. He kneeled to him. First of all, men of his status didn't run. And second of all, they never kneeled. This guy's got some humility about him. I'll tell you what else we see, at least apparently it seems, as though we see some sincerity. There's nothing to suggest here that that he's not sincere. He says, good master, what shall I do? There's a sincerity there. And at least at some level, we see some spirituality. He's a man that recognizes there is a life to come, and he needs to be in on it. Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So if you've got somebody who has some urgency, some humility, some sincerity, and some spirituality, seems to me like they're a prime candidate to be a believer. But not him. Not him. In spite of these encouraging tones, the young man sadly will not be saved, at least not in this narrative. He may have gotten saved later, but the Bible doesn't record it. We hope he eventually came around. He's either a local town official or perhaps even a member of the Sanhedrin. It could be either. There are actually traditions out there that argue that this was Paul. Wholly unprovable. Wholly unfounded. But interesting. (laughs) It's interesting to meditate on a little bit. It's important to note that his question, though wrong was completely typical for the Jews of that day, and by the way, for Americans of this day. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because is that not the American mindset too? What should I do? We have a hard time with faith. We're doers. We're people that want to do something, that want to affect something. Eternal life is never gained through what we do it is gained through what christ has already done let me say that again not a new statement but we need to understand that eternal life is never gained through what we do but through what christ has already done for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of god not of works lest any man should boast paul told titus not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration the renewing of the holy ghost which he shed on us abundantly through jesus christ our savior i am not going to heaven because i'm a good person because many times i'm not I am going to heaven because of what Jesus did for me on the cross of Calvary and raising out of that tomb the third day. That's why I'm going to heaven. Okay? By the way, that's why you're going too. 
It's important to note that at no point in this exchange did Jesus ever preach the gospel to this young man. He never even broached it. So what did he preach to this young man? He preached the law. Why? Because this young man wasn't ready for the gospel. As much as it looked like he was, his urgency, humility, sincerity, spirituality, Jesus knew he's not ready. And so he preached the law. He first had to be convicted through the law that he was indeed a sinner in need of a Savior. Take note of this. He only used the second half of the Ten Commandments, and those are the offenses toward man that are much more measurable. He didn't even get into the offenses towards God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the, under, under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. What is the purpose of the law? It is to show us our need of the Savior and bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus did is he used the law, endeavoring to draw him unto himself. Additionally, I want you to read Jesus' words very carefully and notice that he never offered a works-based salvation to this young man. It bothers me to no end when I read commentaries and they say, now we would never tell somebody this is how you're saved, but Jesus told him this was how to be saved because this was a special circumstance. Jesus' gospel doesn't change from person to person. This is not Jesus telling this young man how to be saved. It is not a works-based salvation. That's never going to be right. In verse 21, look at what it says. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Watch this now. Go thy way, sow whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have what? Treasure in heaven. He said that the selling of his goods would merit treasure in heaven, but not heaven itself. To earn one's own salvation would require a perfect keeping of the law for all of one's life. Matthew 19, 17 states that. But no one has or ever could do that but Jesus. So if you want to, if you want to get to heaven without Jesus, you better have been perfect from the moment of your conception until the moment of your death. And nobody can do that, can they? Now, he is making that point, but he's not suggesting that this young man can earn his way to heaven. So what gets in the way of such a promising candidate coming to Christ? We look at that and we see his urgency, his humility, his sincerity, his spirituality. What in the world kept this prime candidate from coming to Jesus? I got one word for you, mammon. Mammon. Now, what is mammon? Mammon is a general term for the pursuit of wealth and all that comes with it to the exclusion of Christ. Perhaps you remember this verse, Matthew 6, verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
Now, is having money inherently evil? Thankfully, no. The sin is not in having money. The sin is when money has you. What did Paul say to Timothy? This is one of the most misquoted verses out there, that money is the root of all evil. That is not what Paul said. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. It doesn't mean that if, if, if you are rich that you're inherently sinful, but if that is your pursuit to the exclusion of all else that God has for you, then you're, you're, you're going down the wrong road. It doesn't mean you've got to live a vow of poverty, but if God tells you to cough up some money for something, you better do it because it's his. See? For the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, goodness, faith, love, patience, meekness. So what we have before us tonight is a cautionary tale for unsaved people for sure, but also for saved people. And here, here it is. When mammon gets a foothold... When mammon gets a foothold, let's look at the example of this young man and see what happens when mammon gets a foothold. Number one, when mammon gets a foothold, work overshadows grace. Work overshadows grace. Verse 17. He was gone forth in the way. There came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? This was common thinking in a law-based Jewish culture. But beyond the religious, this is common thinking in the minds of the wealthy. Now think about this. Follow this, this thread here. How'd you get so wealthy, sir? Hard what? How'd you get so wealthy? I made good decisions. How'd you get so well off? I did my best and I had the right things in place and I, 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 I. Now, I'm not against hard work and I'm not against people bettering themselves, but what happens in the pursuit of wealth is a lot of times it becomes about what I did by its nature. I gained this fortune by hard work. I made my money through good decisions. And by the way, when the revenue stream isn't what we think it should be, we look to see what we're doing wrong. And this mindset bleeds into the spiritual. I am where I am because of hard work and good decisions. No, you are where you are because of the grace of God. I am where I am because of the mercy of God. And when the blessings ebb, we search for what we can do to improve our lot. And before we know it, we've eventually set aside God's grace and blessing in favor of performance-based metrics. It becomes about what we do. I was talking to somebody just the other day. Man, we're enjoying some wonderful things in granite. 
We got great kids, good families, great staff, great administrator. And we could sit down and we could start listing off all of the contributing factors to the growth of granite. And we could, we could talk about people's response to COVID and the isolation and the masking all of that, and people didn't want anything to do with that. We could talk about people's response to the LGBT stuff going on in our public schools. We we talk about all of that, but we better not lose sight of this truth. As thankful as we are for our administrator and for our faculty and staff and for the good students we have and the facilities we have, we better never get our eyes off the truth that everything we have is because we serve a good and gracious God who gave us everything. It's not about our works. It's about his grace. And when mammon starts getting a foothold, we start getting more focused on the work than we are on his grace. The Family Life Center weighs heavy on my thinking, and sometimes I spend too much thinking trying to figure out how to accomplish the fundraising, how to accomplish meeting this metric or this step. Maybe, just maybe, I should spend more time on my face before God begging for his grace. Because his grace can accomplish more in a second than my entire lifetime can. Watch out lest work overshadow grace. All right, now I'm going to get to meddling a little bit. When mammon gets a foothold, work overshadows grace and benefits overrule service. Verse 17. When he was gone forth in the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may have eternal life? This kid is fired up. Good master! And what does Jesus do? Alexander McLaren, the great old Baptist preacher from the 1800s, actually put it this way. Jesus takes a bucket of spiritual water and cools him down. Jesus would not be prominently featured in the latest teaching on how to win people and influence them. Good master! What's he say? Verse 18. Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. He brought this thing to a screeching halt. Jewish men generally didn't call anyone good because this term was reserved for God. And so there's two possibilities here. Either one, the rich young ruler, maybe in haste, maybe in too much excitement, is trying to flatter Jesus with such a title. That's possible. Or could it be that he actually a sense to the possibility that maybe Jesus just might be the Messiah. Either way, Jesus corrected him and he issued a challenge. Look what he says. Basically what he's saying here is, if you say that I'm good, then I must also be God. Okay? If you say that I'm good, then I must also be God. Now, Are you committing to serve me? Not just a good and benevolent leader, but as the sovereign God of your life. Listen closely. 
there is a vast difference between following a Savior who is good and following one who is God. There are many who claim Christ. They would tell you they're a Christian. They would tell you they believe. And they would tell you how much they love Jesus. But if they're honest, they serve him as good, but not as God. Because someone who is good can only own you so much. But someone who is God is the sovereign Lord of your life, and you serve him no matter what. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, okay, you're willing to say I'm good, but you need to be ready to say that I'm God. And some Christians or people that claim to be Christians, they're okay with the good Savior, but they struggle with the God Savior. Now, what, what does that have to do with benefits overrule service? Are you following me because I am good and you perceive that I benefit you in following me? Or are you following me because I'm God and you just want to serve me? Now, let that sink in. Am I following Jesus because of the benefits that I associate with it and the good things that I get? Or am I following him because I believe he's the God of the universe that has a right to tell me anything he wants me to do? And if you find that you're serving God more because of the benefits than you are in service to him, then mammon has gotten a foothold. Fewer amens on that one. You know what? When you see him as good, circumstances can impact your service to him, can't they? Things aren't as good, you stop serving. But when you see him as God, circumstances can't shake you. Which does this sound like? I'm going to read you a verse. Which does this sound like, good or God? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Does that sound like benefits or service? Good or God? Watch out when mammon gets a foothold. Because when mammon gets a foothold, works overshadow overshadow grace. And benefits overrule service. You know what else happens? Pride overrides reality. Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. false but you know what I think I think he really believed it I don't think he's trying to pull one over on Jesus I believe he's been deceived himself because what you find about Jesus and Jesus does this in several places most notably in Matthew Jesus is saying hey 
you've heard it said not to commit adultery. But I got news for you. You look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already done it. You've heard it said. Well, no, this is actually in 1 John. You hate your brother in your heart? You're a murderer. We look at the Ten Commandments and we say, well, okay, yeah, sometimes I put things ahead of God. So, yeah, I guess technically thou shalt have no other gods before me. But, but I, I've, never, I've never made any graven image. No? You ever try to make God into the image you want him to be instead of who he is? Hmm. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. When, when he says that, he doesn't just mean him personally. He means his creation because all of it's in his image, right? You cuss your brother, guess what happens? Same sin. It's blasphemy. Huh? <laughs> Thou shalt not kill. I'm good on that. No, you're not. You hate somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. Adultery, I'm good on that. No, you're not. You've had a lustful thought for somebody other than your spouse, guess what? Guilty. I've never stolen. You ever taken a paycheck and not worked your best? Guess what? You stole. You ever been dissatisfied with what God gave you? Wanted something somebody else had? That's covetous. So we've already understood that we are covetous, idolatrous, murdering, thieving adulterers. Hey, by the way, why should we go to heaven? That's part of that law convicting us of our need for a Savior. We're sorrier than we think we are. But this fellow, and he honestly believed it. I've kept all these from my youth. Even if it were true, and it's not. He didn't mention the things, the sins against God. He didn't mention that. And if he sinned one time in his life, James tells us you offend the law in one point, you've offended the whole thing. What is pride? Pride is believing a lie about yourself. And pride overrides reality. This kid couldn't see reality. And when mammon starts to take a foothold in our lives, we stop being able to see things as they are. Remember from verse 18, only God is good. Psalm 14.3, they're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. Isaiah 64, we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we do all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And so this self-assessment by the rich young ruler was completely inaccurate. And when we pursue, pursue mammon, it by nature becomes egocentric. It stops being about others. And then we get this elevated view of ourselves based on our perceived success. And our, our goal needs to be to see ourselves as God sees us. So if you've got pride creeping in, guess what? Mammon might be taking a foothold. If mammon takes a foothold, works overshadow grace, and benefits overrule service, and pride overrides reality, and the present overtakes the future. Verse 21. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. He loved him. And he said unto him, One thing thou lackest. 
Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come and take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. We get a little hint of what's happening in his spirit in verse number 20. He starts off by saying, good master. What's he say in verse 20? Just master. All right, so he's already cooling a little bit towards Jesus, isn't he? By the way, have you ever noticed that? Maybe you're witnessing somebody, you give somebody the gospel, and it starts out very promising, but the more you get into the truth, they start to cool on you. See, anybody will go into this Joel Osteen foolishness of, you know, God's for you, and you can have anything you want and do whatever. Anybody can get into that. But you start telling somebody they're a sinner. You start telling somebody if they have to answer to God for their sin, they'll cool to that. They'll either cool to it or they'll warm up to it because they need it. He starts distancing. Now, Jesus still loves him, and he demonstrates that it is his wealth that stands in the way of his future. He's going to demonstrate that you are more concerned about your present, what you have now, than you are your future. By the way, that's an easy thing to do. We get caught up in the here and now that fades away, and we give no thought to what we should be building up over there that doesn't fade away. Quiet on me tonight. Mammon has become his idol, and he'll not part with it. And so he squanders a much brighter future. Instead of a childlike faith in Christ alone, this rich young ruler has placed all his trust in his money. And this is interesting to me. I love it. I love it how the Gospels work with each other to give us a full picture. Matthew and Luke tell us that he was sorrowful. But Mark tells us he was grieved. And that word grieved comes from a word that literally means the gathering storm clouds. He's already cooled against Jesus. And then when Jesus says he has to get rid of all his possessions, and you can see the dark clouds forming over him. How dare you? Who are you? to mess with my stuff. Who are you? And the thunder begins to form in the background. Can I tell you something? When you reject anything that Christ offers, the only thing that can gather is storm clouds. And only bitterness will remain. I sometimes wonder if this wasn't Paul because maybe this is why Paul was so stinking bitter going into Acts. I have theories about Paul. None of them are scriptural, but they're really sound. (laughs) It's been said, and rightly so, money is a marvelous servant, but a terrible master. The present overtakes the future. And when we start worrying more about the present than we are the future, then guess what? Mammon has taken a foothold in our lives. 
So what's our takeaway? I guess we could say so what, but what's our, what's our takeaway from this? Well, the last few verses give us the takeaway. Here's the first one, verse 23. He goes away grieved. He had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and said to his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered and answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, the first thing we take away from this is that mammon is a common obstruction to salvation and to service. It's not sinful to have money, but when all you want to do is build that wealth, that can get in the way. It's a common obstruction. Those of us that have been out on door-to-door or done any kind of outreach at all, I'll tell you, it's relatively easy to get somebody who's tore up and drugged out and everything else to listen to the gospel. It's the people that live in the nice neighborhoods that you struggle with. I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Mammon is a common obstruction to salvation and service. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say it's impossible. It's impossible to get a rich man in the kingdom. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. But here's the next takeaway. You ready? God can overcome the power of mammon. It's nothing for him. Look at verse 26. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? Now remember, there's a Jewish, there's a Jewish mindset that that spirituality and service to God can be equated with wealth. And if you're wealthy, it must be because God has blessed you. And that guy was so wealthy, God blessed him. And so he must walk closely with God. And now they're staring face to face with the reality that these riches are not indicative of his love for God. These riches are driving him from God. And Jesus just said, rich people can't be saved. It's impossible. And now they're like, well, who can be saved then? If these rich people who we thought were walking with God can't be, who can? And that's when Jesus, man, I love this verse, with men, It is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You're right, fellas. It's impossible, but I'm glad to tell you, God can do the impossible. That loved one that you're praying for, impossible, but God can do the impossible. That need that you have in your life, it's impossible. But God can do the impossible. That whatever you're battling in life, that enslaving habit, that besetting sin, it's impossible for you to get over it. But God can do the impossible. Two and a half million dollar building over there. Impossible. But God can do the impossible. That friend you've been praying for, that situation, that health need, it's all impossible. But God can do the impossible. Never forget that. Never. Last takeaway. Mammon is a common obstruction to salvation and service, but God can overcome the power of mammon. Here's the last one. You ready? Real simple. It pays to serve God. It pays to serve God. Verse 28. Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. 
And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man. If you look up the Greek for no man, it means no man. None, without exception. There is no man that's left a house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. He conceives that's part of it. And in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. You're not going to always understand how this works. It's not always going to be apparent to you, but I'm telling you, it pays to serve God. It pays. <clears throat> I uh, have an OCD problem. Some of you know it. I'm a hoarder. Now, I'm not one of those hoarders like you see on TV, okay? I, I don't keep empty, empty cans of cat food because I'm attached to them. By the way, I'm not making fun of that. Some people struggle with that kind of thing, and they need help. I am an emotional hoarder. I'm a sentimental hoarder. I find it difficult to get rid of things that are sentimental to me. I suspect I have probably 80% of every scrap of paper my kids have ever scribbled on and given to me. I can't bring myself to you because they, they make that for me, you know. Some of y'all, bless your hearts, you just say, oh, that's nice. You know, I, I don't have room for it. I'm a minimalist. Okay, fine. I struggle with that. And I am just sentimentally attached. I've got a truck sitting in my driveway I should probably get rid of. Every once in a while, I take the notion to think, you know, what kind of engine I can put in it, and we can get this thing back on the road, and maybe I can. I love that truck. I love it. It's not hurting anything. So there it sits. And uh, I especially feel that way about our home. I love our home. I confess to you, I don't love every little thing about our home. There's things I would change, you know. Um, but I love our home. That home means a lot to me. Because we got that home under circumstances that maybe you don't know about. I've been here about two years happy, not looking to go anywhere, not dissatisfied with anything. By the way, in 11 years, I've never put out any feelers. I've never asked anybody to put my name out there. I've never done anything like that. But my first pastorate, it was pretty clear to me that my job was to go in, right the ship on some things, get some things taken care of, and that there came a point that God says, okay, that's what you've been sent here to do. It's time to move on. I was there five years. So after about two years, I, uh, I started wondering. I said, Lord, is that what I'm meant to do? Am I meant to come in and help get everything 
kind of situate a little bit and move back in a direction and then I move on to the next project or or am I meant to stay? Lord, I'm not asking you for a sign, but I sure would like some guidance because I need to get my mindset in that direction if that's what my job is. And uh, it wasn't two weeks later we got contacted about by someone that wanted to sell us their home. And the deal they offered us. So y'all look at my house and y'all think we are loaded. And that you pay me too much. Now I'll admit you probably do pay me too much. You probably do. I don't feel bad enough about it to give it back. But you know. I mean. <laughs> but the long and the short of it is this. I was asking God to give me some understanding of what he wanted me to do. And a, a house falls into my lap. You see, living in the parsonage, theoretically, the Davies could pack up and leave in the middle of the night. No strings attached. They could. And I could have when I lived there too. But now I own a house. I'm stuck. Oh, yeah. No doubt in my mind it was God's way of saying, let your roots get deep. Now, that sounds great. But then it wasn't that long ago I started struggling again. It was the opposite. Have you ever had God lead you in a direction just to show that you're willing, even though it wasn't really his will? Andy, you're attached to this house. Would you leave it for me? Once again, had no desire to leave, nothing, no, not dissatisfied with anything, but the Holy Spirit was just working on me. Would you let this thing go for me? If that's what I wanted you to do, would you do that for me? Because if I get to a place where I say, you know what, God, I know you're calling us to do this over here, but I love this house, and I love this church, and I love this area, and this is the only place my, my, my children have ever known, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay put because I'm comfortable, then you know what that whole thing has become? Mammon. Anything that I pursue to the exclusion of God's will is mammon. Anything. And you can't serve God and mammon. So I had to come to a place where I said, Lord, and I had to really mean it, Lord. If you're saying it's time, I can't pretend I'm going to like it, Lord, but I'll submit to it. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll leave this house that I've come to love very, very much. But more than that, I'll leave this church that I've come to love very, very much, if that's what you want. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that God said, ah, I'm just messing with you. No, it wasn't that. But as soon as I got that to that point, the burden lifted. Kind of like Abraham. Will you give me your son? God never intended for Abraham to kill that boy. But Abraham had to see that he would. Maybe you've been in something like that. Can I tell you something? Whether it's here, whether it's Alabama, whether it was back in Richmond, wherever, I can tell you, I can tell you without a doubt that, yeah, mammon can get in the way, but God is bigger than that, and it pays to serve God. It's always your best choice. 
But when you let anyone or anything take you out of the will of God, that becomes your mammon. And you can't serve both. It's one or the other. As best we know, that rich young ruler went on in his life, and when he died, he left every bit of it behind. And he went to hell. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Christ, if you're watching, you've never trusted Christ, are you going to let your present rob you of your future? Is there something keeping you from Christ? That's mammon. Let it go. Maybe you're saved. You're saved, but you're not serving him like you should. And something's keeping you from that. That's mammon. And we've got to learn from that rich young ruler that if Jesus says give it up, give it up. Let it go. When you get to heaven, find Matthew. Levi. He left it all. Whole lot of money. A comfortable life. Ask him if it was worth it. Peter had a pretty good fishing business. Left it all. Ask him if it was worth it. Don't let mammon get a foothold.